Jesus is saying here that unchecked sin in our lives represents a threat to the faith and well-being of little ones who are watched over by the very angels of heaven. Hear that and tremble. You do not want to be the reason that one of those little ones abandons the walk of faith. If your eye is leading you into some kind of sin that might discourage or mislead or dissuade one of these little ones, then gouge out your eye, brother. It is just that serious. Smash your computer with a bat. Flush that substance down the toilet. Strangle that addiction in the womb because the souls of little ones hang in the balance. And great is the wrath of their father, who is in heaven. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus has a particular concern for the salvation and protection of the little ones. Few things are as clear in the New Testament as that. The job of the leader in the covenant community is to nurture young faith and to protect young faith. Not to build platforms, not to grab power, not to scramble for positions of prestige and privilege. The disciples struggled to understand that. And it would appear that a certain percentage of leaders today struggle to understand that reality as well. Here to unpack this story further is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 18. I should mention here that though I say that at the start of every episode, I am so thankful for all the listeners who are folding laundry right now or washing dishes or driving home from work. I've had a few of you tell me that you feel guilty every time I say, if you have your Bible with you, please open it to chapter so-and-so. Well, don't feel bad. We started this program for you. We want to help busy moms and dads in particular read, love, and live the whole Word of God. We, we want to help you know it so that you can teach it and pass it on to your kids. So you keep folding your laundry or driving your car, and I will do my best to bring you the unchanging, inerrant, inspired, and useful Word of God. On this episode, we're talking about Matthew 18. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if we compare this to the parallel account in Mark's gospel, we see that this conversation was precipitated by a dispute that the disciples had while they were walking home to Capernaum. Matthew told us in 1724 that they were back in Capernaum, but he didn't tell us about this argument along the way. Apparently, they'd been talking about this matter for a long time, which is really sad. However, Matthew leaves that part out and just tells us what happened when they finally brought the matter to Jesus' attention. At some point in Capernaum, again, comparing with Mark, it seems probable that this happened in Peter's house. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him to settle a dispute. Which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The flow of the narrative leads us to presume that this dispute arose because of the special revelation that Peter, James, and John had just experienced. They just saw something that none of the other disciples had seen. And so 
Maybe they thought that the one who sees the most special things is the most favored and therefore the one who ought to be in charge and lifted up over all the others. In essence, they are asking whether or not the kingdom will be arranged charismatically, that is, according to gifts and special insights and experiences. Jesus' answer was not at all what they were expecting. We pick up the story at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. The disciples must have been stung by this fairly severe correction. They went from wondering who is at the top to wondering if they were even in at all. Jesus calls that into question. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So not only is this not the time to wonder who is in charge, apparently the disciples aren't even on track for inclusion in the kingdom of God. Unless they turn and become like children, they will never enter the kingdom of God. That's a stern rebuke. And it reflects the fact that as Jesus had feared, the disciples have sucked up a lot of the worldview and leadership assumptions of the scribes and Pharisees. They weren't thinking like Jesus' people at this time. They're, they're thinking like typical first century Pharisaic Jews. And so Jesus comes pretty hard with the correction here. He puts a child in the center of the circle. It may have even been Peter's child or his nephew. It is almost certainly his house after all. So he puts this child in the middle of them and he says, you men need to learn from this child. I'm sure that is not what they were expecting. This comparison suggests that all kingdom citizens must be characterized by humility and trust. What Jesus went on to say suggests that leadership in the kingdom is fundamentally not about power and prestige, but is rather about serving and protecting the little ones, both literally and figuratively, meaning it's about serving and protecting biological little ones and spiritual little ones, children and baby Christians, receiving those little ones, feeding those little ones, protecting those little ones is what leadership in the kingdom of heaven is all about. And woe to the one who makes them stumble. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Do you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God? Then you've got to care about the little ones and you've got to be very careful lest you cause any of those little ones to sin. We see that in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Again, the mention of the little ones here suggests that the urgent action against sin is in order not to cause these little ones to stumble. Stop and hear that. Mom and dad, hear that. Youth pastor and preaching pastor and elder and deacon, hear that. Jesus is saying here that unchecked sin in our lives represents a threat to the faith and well-being of little ones who are watched over by the very angels of heaven. Hear that and tremble. You do not want to be the reason that one of those little ones abandons the walk of faith. If your eye is leading you into some kind of sin that might discourage or mislead or dissuade one of these little ones, then gouge out your eye, brother. It is just that serious. Smash your computer with a bat. Flush that substance down the toilet. Strangle that addiction in the womb because the souls of little ones hang in the balance. And great is the wrath of their father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because there's a few things in that passage that I think would be useful to clarify. The main idea seems pretty clear. Jesus is saying that because the faith and well-being of the little ones is so important to him, we as his disciples need to do everything in our power to make sure that they are safe and they're well cared for in our midst. And if that means getting rid of a bad habit or a sinful tendency, then so be it. We should want to get rid of those things anyway, but all the more because of their potential to harm and discourage young believers. Is that a reasonably accurate summary? Yeah, I think that's it exactly. So to be clear, Jesus isn't actually telling people to gouge out their eyes or cut off their hands if they're struggling with something like pornography, for example. Correct. This is vivid language, but it is not intended to be taken literally. We have phrases like this in English. We talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. We're not talking literally there. We're talking about somebody who hurts themselves in order to score a point against someone else. Or sometimes we will say that our new car cost us an arm and a leg. Well, again, of course, we're not saying that in a literal way. That's just vivid language. And so it is here. Jesus is saying that a person ought to be willing to take extreme measures against the remaining sin in their lives in order to protect and safeguard the little ones over which they have influence. So to use the example of pornography, what are some of the extreme measures that a dad or a youth leader or a baseball coach would want to take in order to make sure that his sinful habits don't begin to negatively influence the little ones under his care? Well, that's a great question. I think I would recommend a mixture of technological and relational measures in that particular battle. Technologically, you have to do everything you can to make pornography as inaccessible as possible. That means not having certain apps on your phone. It might mean not having data on your phone. I know of a couple guys who, who bought old school flip phones with no data, no internet capacity, and no apps, just phoning and texting because they were losing the battle for purity because of how accessible pornography was to them on their smartphones. You may have to do something like that. Well, but what about the person who says, well, I, I need my phone for work or I need those apps for banking and whatnot? 
Well, the whole idea here is that these are extreme measures. If it were easy and non-disruptive, then it wouldn't be considered an extreme measure. Jesus is saying that this is important enough that you need to be willing to make some sacrifices. And I think, you know, having to do with an old school phone and maybe having to do some in-person banking (laughs) is nowhere near as extreme as what we ought to be willing to do. Okay. Well, you talked about some technological approaches, but there's also those relational approaches you mentioned. Talk to us about that. Well, for me, I grew up and came of age before the technology piece was really huge. When I was in university, the internet speed was still (laughs) (laughs) 14.4. And so, you know, waging war on this sin was less about technological solutions and more about relational solutions. But no matter how technologically enabled this sin becomes, I still think that the relational solutions are going to be more important for the believer. I think that confession of sin is just so terrifying and humiliating that it really does serve as both a deterrent and a cauterizing agent. Hmm. Yeah, so what do you mean by that? I don't want to pry, but I think some specifics would be helpful. Yeah, sure. For me, I began to achieve victory in this area when I entered into intentional accountability relationships with friends. I had two friends who were empowered to ask me really horrible, wildly intimate, and massively awkward questions. And we met on a semi-regular basis to do that. And just knowing that I would have to answer those questions and knowing that I would have to look into a brother's eye and talk about my weaknesses and failures, that made a huge difference for me. The horrific pain of confession and accountability made the sin seem like less of a good deal. And then positively, the prayers and encouragements of those friends were really helpful too in terms of calling down grace into my life. So I think it often comes down to that. The relational piece is huge. I would even say generally decisive as a means of grace. If you want to have victory here, get a friend or two and draw up a list of five horrifically intrusive questions and decide on a schedule for meeting and asking each other those questions and demand that you make eye contact while you do it. Then commit to praying for each other. I, I think that's 80% of it. And then the rest comes down to wisdom around accessibility. Make sure your wife or your parent has the passcode to your phone and the passwords for all your devices and invite them to go through your stuff every once in a while. Privacy is the price you pay for purity. And in this story, Jesus is telling us to be willing to pay whatever price we have to in order to get on top of any sin that could potentially harm or discourage a younger believer. So you do what you got to do. All right. Thanks so much for that. And let me add my 100% agreement with all of that. This is an important issue. And we have to equip each other to succeed for our own sake, but also for the sake of those around us. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God is the hound of heaven, Jesus is saying. He is seeking out the little ones. So woe unto the fool who stands in his way. Don't be that guy. Rather, the true leader in the kingdom is coming alongside of God, making himself or herself available to God in the great mission of seeking out and raising up and protecting always each and every one of these little ones on their way to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about. Verse 15. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, it's important to understand the connection between what Jesus is saying here and what Jesus just said about not causing the little ones to stumble. Jesus is saying that far from being the cause of someone falling away, rather we must work diligently to gather back those who have strayed. That's what leadership is about. And here's a process for doing that, he says. Step one, speak to the offending brother one-on-one. Do not gossip. Do not solicit advice on how to handle the situation because that's just gossip. Don't do anything that would make it harder for one of these little ones, for a new believer who has stumbled or become confused or offended, to be restored to loving fellowship in the church. So go to them and speak to them gently one-on-one, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if the brother in question doesn't listen to you, then and only then do you broaden out the circle to include others. These others might be elders, pastors, or other wise and mature members of the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if the individual refuses to return or repent, even when lovingly confronted by a small group of mature believers, usually including at least one pastor or elder, then it must become a matter of general church discipline. The matter should be referred to the church as a whole. In some polity systems, that will mean to a board of elders acting on behalf of the whole. But at some point, however the details are worked out, the whole family has to know. Verse 17 goes on to say, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If the brother or sister refuses to respond to the correction of the whole church, then he or she is not a brother or sister. A real brother or sister filled with the Holy Spirit will respond to gentle family discipline. They will hear the truth and recognize it and respond to it slowly but surely under the prompting and inner convictions that are characteristic of a truly converted heart. But if they don't respond like that, then they are to be treated as unbelievers. They should not take the Lord's Supper, and they should no longer be considered members of the church. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This promise is specific to the context. Jesus is saying that when the church gathers to conduct their family business, Jesus, as their older brother, is there in the midst. Now, as to the nature of these decisions that are being made, Leon Morris is helpfully here. Jesus is not giving the church the right to make decisions that will then become binding on God. Such a thought is alien from anything in his teaching. He is saying that as the church is responsive to the guidance of God, it will come to the decisions that have already been made in heaven. Closed quote. Thus, our decisions about extending or withholding the table and extending or rescinding membership do not have to do with making people saved or unsaved, but rather they have to do with crediting and recognizing people as saved or unsaved. 
extending table fellowship says, I credit you as a brother or sister in Christ. I recognize you as a, as a brother or sister. Extending membership says the same. The withdrawal of those things say, we, we cannot credit you as a follower of Christ. We don't recognize you. Your deeds contradict your profession of faith. Concerning the above, we should note that the full process is given in response to the situation wherein a brother sins against you. That was the introduction. The entire process need not be observed then in cases of public known sin that is not against another member of the church. A man publicly committing adultery, as for example in 1 Corinthians 5, is taken directly to the final step in the process by the Apostle Paul. So obviously discernment and wisdom are here required. The point is that far from causing people to fall away, the job of church leaders is to seek out and restore those who are straying. And that means wading into the muck in order to rescue those who have fallen. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Here the conversation shifts slightly from restoration to forgiveness. What if, what if I'm the one who's been wronged, Peter asks? How should I, as an individual, conduct myself? That's a good question. And let's give Peter credit for recognizing the distinction here. A person can forgive willingly and frequently, irrespective of the decisions of the church as a whole on matters of discipline. Meaning, if a member of the church steals my car or assaults my wife, I can forgive him. But the church may still rightly initiate a process of correction and discipline. These things are overlapping, but they are not exactly the same. Peter wants to know how much mercy he ought to be personally extending. To answer that question, Jesus tells a story. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart point of this parable is to remind us that we have all been forgiven an incalculable debt. After all, the guilt of the offender is multiplied by the innocence and majesty of the offended. God is 
infinitely innocent and infinitely majestic, and therefore our sin represents an infinite debt of guilt. And yet, because of the kindness of God, we've been forgiven through Jesus Christ, and therefore we ought to be very generous and very kind and unrelentingly merciful toward our brothers and sisters who offend and sin against us. This is not optional. In fact, the parable suggests that whether or not we do this actually indicates whether we have truly received and understood the forgiveness we have been extended by the Master. Truly forgiven people freely forgive. That's the point of the parable. As to the punishment received by the unmerciful servant, D.A. Carson says helpfully here, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Closed quote. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Both are true. Both are real. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word here on Life 100.3. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.